Father, we listen to your word this morning and we ask for your spirit to help us understand and value and know and appreciate all that has been spoken. We confess that we believe that the teacher is here and that he is calling for us. So speak, Lord. Your servants are here listening. Amen. My oldest son is involved in the Boy Scouts of America and it's been a really wonderful experience and they have many great qualified adult leaders who take them on various camping trips and currently right now he's involved in preparations for a Philmont trip this summer that is rather arduous. It's two weeks in duration and it's many miles that they'll be hiking, over 50. And so the troop is requiring a great deal of training. Over spring break, Sim was required to go on a hike in the North Georgia mountains, and so there was a good deal of preparation. It's fairly rugged there, approaching the Appalachian Trail, and so they were training and preparing and learning how to pack their bags, what they needed, what they did not. One of the adult leaders, Mr. Eichler, was in charge of this instruction. And Mr. Eichler takes his role very seriously, as you have to do with a group of teenagers. And so there were many emails, there was a lot of instruction, sometimes a bit overbearing. Mr. Eichler's son is a good friend of Sims, and so they left on the trip together a few weeks ago. When they arrived at the campsite, they received a call from Florida. Someone had left their bag and one boot in the parking lot. And so Mr. Eichler proceeded to have the boys come out and he railed them as to who was so careless to leave their bag and boot that you're not gonna be able to participate in the training hike. And gentlemen, we have to have things together and it needs to be orderly and you need to know how to take care of your stuff. <laughs> A few minutes later, everyone hears Mr. Eichler call out his son's name, Joey. <laughs> Sorry. Do you know <laughs> Do you know where my bag is? <laughs> oh, it's too good. Uh, <laughs> hey Joey, do you <laughs> Do you know where my boot is? <laughs> and suddenly <laughs> Mr. Eichler was exposed. Uh, it was his bag. It was his boot that was back in Florida. And this is the thing that we've seen week over week here in the Gospel of John, is that the Pharisees play the same role. They police everyone. They instruct everyone. They're the religious authorities in control. And yet they completely miss it. They don't know how to value what's taking place in front of them that Jesus is healing on the Sabbath and they misinterpret it. They wanna catch him on a technicality that's not even a breaking of the law of God. And they're missing the point of the miracle that the Sabbath of God is arriving, that true rest is being realized, that creation is being restored, that the reign of God is now being manifest in Jesus. And this is unfortunately also a dynamic that continues to play itself out in church, that we can miss it like this as well. 
that we can hold on to our religion and our authority and our position, our knowledge, and yet we can be terribly off course. And we're exposed to that same ridicule and laughter that the Pharisees receive because of their role in the Gospel of John. So the natural question is, what does Jesus do about this hard-heartedness that he encounters with the Pharisees? And what does he do about the hard-heartedness that he encounters even in the church today? There's one last miracle. There are six major miracles in this first half of the Gospel of John, and they're marked out very specifically for us. The first was Jesus turning the water into wine in chapter 2, and then we have successive miracles that then arrive at this final one which is a culmination, of course. It is the most dramatic of all the miracles. Jesus explains in verse 42 that this miracle was done in order to confirm his authority, that he had been sent by God. The miracle of raising a man from the dead confirms that. But there's also another purpose to the miracle that's very important for us to appreciate. Because this miracle is not only confirming, it is also a climatic final sign that sums up everything that God is doing through Jesus. That it is a summary of what Jesus comes into the world to do. It is a summary of what it means that he is light and that he is life. This is what God is up to in Jesus Christ as we read the event of Lazarus' resurrection. And it's an event that confronted the Pharisees. They were there listening. It's an event that continues to confront the church. It shakes us. It disturbs us. It pulls us out of our religious slumber. It keeps us from playing nice religious games like the Pharisees. And it keeps us, it arrests us that we not miss the point. And so how exactly, though, does this event, this miracle, how does it challenge us and disturb us? There's two main things that we'll see in these verses. But first, we do learn how to approach Jesus. Mary and Martha play a very important role in this story. We know that Jesus has a prior relationship with them. He loved Mary and Martha, and he loved their brother, Lazarus. There is some prior history that the gospel doesn't fully explain to us, but there is personal commitment, and there is belief on the side of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And in their characters, in the roles that they play in John chapter 11, we see how to come to Jesus in our need. This is what it looks like to approach Jesus. And we can profitably trace their interactions with Jesus through the whole chapter and see exactly how you and I are to come to him when we're in need. The first piece and first part of this in verse 3, we see that Jesus welcomes us simply to share our problems Look what happens. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. It's a very simple lesson to appreciate. But when the sisters were in trouble, 
What did they do? They didn't go into emergency planning. They didn't take all the task upon themselves. They sent for Jesus and they gave him the message clearly stating what the problem was. Lazarus is sick. They knew that Jesus could do something about that and so they called for him. They didn't know what he was going to do. They didn't know how he was going to do it. They simply knew that he was able to resolve it. And they brought their concern, they brought their burden, they brought their sorrow to Jesus and put it before him. And this is a simple lesson, but it's a model to emulate. Because oftentimes when we hit trouble, we know we're supposed to turn to Jesus, but yet we're slow to do so. In our anxiety, in our concern, in our worry, we either become hyperproductive or we collapse in despair. And Mary and Martha give us a very simple way ahead. They state the problem to Jesus. And we find as the story continues to unfold that they approach Jesus also in other ways. If you follow in verses 21 and 32, we see that they also express their disappointment to Jesus. Because as you read the story, Jesus doesn't show up. We'll come back to that in just a moment. And Lazarus dies. He's dead. And then in verse 21, this is Martha. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary says the very same thing in verse 32. And it's appropriate to hear lament and disappointment. They had asked Jesus to come, and you'll note that he was less than two miles away. He was somewhere in the vicinity of Jerusalem. He was not far off, an hour's walk at most, and Jesus didn't come. Mary and Martha were deeply disappointed. Their brother had died. Jesus didn't do something that they felt he was capable of doing. And friends, this is one of those lessons for the Christian life that's critical to receive. That in the face of disappointment and tragedy and heartache and sorrow and grief, which touches every one of us in various ways in life. It is okay to approach Jesus with your disappointment. Most people I've found as a pastor are very uncomfortable with that, and I can say it because I, too, have been very uncomfortable with it. It was through a series of circumstances in which life got very difficult and demanding, in which I didn't know what to do, in which my relationship with God became very stale, and I found myself meeting with a counselor, and he asked me a very simple question, Chuck, have you expressed your disappointment to God? And I began to answer him and realized that the only thing I had expressed to God was my anger. <laughs> I was good at that. And he directed me towards some books that I began reading, and because the stall in my prayer life that was taking place I began to read the Psalms. I was 31 years old and had never spent much time there. But these were my prayers. These were the places where I could ruminate and think 
and find connection with God. When I didn't have the words to pray, they were giving me words to pray. And I began to find a range of prayers that were taking place in the Bible's prayer book that was completely foreign to me. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 13 to find one example of how Jesus would authorize us to express our disappointments to him, the grief and the sorrow that we have in life. Because in the midst of my own sorrow and grief and confusion, this is where God directed me. In Psalm 13, it begins in this fashion. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Many people read those words and blush. Can I really speak to God like that? Can I bring complaint like that to God? Is that respectful? Is that appropriate? Can God handle that? Aren't I supposed to say, oh God, hallowed be your name? Can I come with such directness? Can I come with such honesty? And Jesus is saying, yes. It's not the only thing we come with, but we certainly can come with our honesty, our grief, and our disappointment. We don't have to hide that from God. In fact, the Psalms are releasing you that there's something cathartic in your grief and disappointment of coming to God and naming it. But you also see something in Psalm 13 that will also follow in the passage in John 11. The Psalm closes like this in verses five and six. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And this is one of the features of all the psalms that lament and grieve. That the condition is stated very honestly. And then there is a resolution that despite the confusion, despite the grief, despite the sorrow, that I will entrust myself to God. That I will give thanks to him. That even though I don't understand the resolution, I trust that he will bring it. There is a deep resolve in the heart of those who believe in Jesus. That even if we can't see the way that God will bring the resolution, we're resolved that the resolution does belong to God, even though it's bewildering and painful. And inside of that resolution, that creates the room in which we can state our grief and our sorrow. You notice that Martha is not without faith. If you follow in verse 22, Jesus asked her the question. After he makes the statement that I am the resurrection and the life, he says, Martha, do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. And so she states her faith, the objective truth, She doesn't know how this is going to fix with the death of her brother, but she simply affirms, and she says, yes. Earlier, she says in verse 22, 
but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. She affirms once again. And this is what faith does. It can lay its sorrows up to God, and it could lay its trust up to God, and it can allow those to sit in an uncomfortable tension. And this is how we learn from Mary and Martha about an approach that we can state our problem and we can also express our disappointment inside of a trust. The final thing we see here about approaching Jesus, you find in verse 34, where it's clear that Jesus welcomes you to invite him into your mess. It's a mess. Lazarus is dead. Jewish funerals were intense. They went on for several days. People had come from Jerusalem. Obviously, Lazarus was a man of standing. He was known and respected. He drew a large crowd. Mary and Martha were loved. Everyone has gathered is weeping with them. Painful. And then you'll note what Jesus says. He's deeply moved by their pain. He says, where have you laid him? In verse 34. And they said to him, Lord, come and see. It's a wonderful poetic reminder for you of how God authorizes you to invite him into your mess. Into the deepest trouble, into the deepest sorrow. Lord, come and see. Come and see it. Experience it in all of its weightiness. Experience it in all of its sorrow and all of its anguish and all of its pain. Come and see it. That's what Mary and the crowd does here. And so we learn from Mary and Martha about what it looks like to approach God, especially in the middle of our deepest suffering. Second thing that we learn from this passage and these verses is we also learn about God's absence in the middle of tragedy. John 11 hits on some of the most sensitive things that exist in the life of a church. Where is God? Where is God when things go completely out of control? What we learn is that Jesus did love Martha and Mary and Lazarus. If you look back in verse three, it affirms that the one whom Jesus loved is ill. They request that he come to the home to visit Lazarus. And then verse five, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place. The irony should catch you. He loved them, so he waited. What is that? When you read your Bible, you need to be asking that. What is happening there? Jesus loved them, and so he waited and let Lazarus die. What is happening there? It seems insensitive. It seems even cruel. It seems absent-minded. It seems like Jesus doesn't care at all. In this story, it's very possible to read it 
and not have Jesus look very good. The timing was hurtful. It was insensitive. It can feel anything but loving. So what do we make of this? There's two things that happen in the passage. First one is we see that Jesus deeply identifies with us in our suffering. If you turn to verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That is at this graveside where Jesus had been invited He enters into the sorrow and the grief of life. He is mourning with those who mourn. And so while it's very possible to think that Jesus was indifferent and he held off two days and that this was kind of a coarse action, we see something else affirmed here, that Jesus is deeply troubled by the events the death of his friend Lazarus, the pain of Mary and Martha, the grief of the entire crowd. Jesus identifies with it. And then we're also told the same thing in verse 38. Once again, when he comes to the grave, he's deeply troubled, emphasizing the same word. And in verse 35, we have young schoolboy's favorite verse to memorize in the Bible. It's the shortest one. Jesus wept, drawing out the humanity and compassion of Jesus in the face of all this pain and hurt. And it affirms for us one of the most foundational truths of the Christian faith, that God identifies with us in our pain, in our suffering, in our anguish, that he's not absent, even though we can experience it that way, that perhaps in the experience of absence, he's most profoundly present in ways that we can't even fully understand. He identifies and he understands. C.S. Lewis, after the loss of his wife, Joy, who he married while she was in the hospital with cancer, she then had a period of remission, but the cancer returned and she died. He writes a book entitled A Grief Observed, very short, painful book, in which Lewis, with his literary eloquence, walks you through the experience of grief. It's not always pretty, it's sometimes it's very challenging, but one of the things that he notes is that the real suffering within suffering is the loneliness. It is people saying trite things to you, speaking theological truisms of basically look for the silver lining in the dark cloud, of people not understanding the loss and the daily return to your home and not hearing the voice of your loved one. It's the pain of having to move on, of putting your life back together without the person and daily being reminded of this deep pain. And here we're being told, though, that Jesus identifies with us, that the one who is fully God and fully man, he identifies in our sorrow and our grief, our pain and our anguish, and that he enters into it. And this is no small comfort for us, because we all experience these afflictions, 
to degrees in life, some greater than others, and it's heartbreaking in the life of the church. But the one thing we can hold on to, that we can affirm, is that when we feel forsaken, our God weeps. Our God is in the midst of our pain, our tragedy, our suffering. Jesus shares in it. The second thing that we see here, though, is also a view of God's larger plan. That not only is he identifying with us in our suffering and pain, we catch a glimpse of all that God has in store. Jesus delayed. He didn't show up and heal Lazarus. Certainly he could have done that. They had seen him do that time and time again. And suddenly he's lazy in his arrival and Lazarus has died. In fact, he's been dead four days. Jesus says, open the tomb. They say, this is gonna stink. What are you doing? Why in the world would you do that? And Jesus speaks into Lazarus' tomb and the power of the creator and the redeemer of the world, the one who from dust formed human beings in his own image. Jesus, by right as that creator, the living word of God, summons Lazarus out of the dead. You don't see this, friends. (laughs) This doesn't happen. It hadn't happened before. Here comes Lazarus out of the dead, still bound up. If you can imagine the crowds, he still has a head, a cloth upon his head and he's wrapped up tight and Jesus has affirmed for us that he is the resurrection and the life it's a little foretaste it's an appetizer because there was going to be another death that was going to take place shortly thereafter and it would be his own you see Lazarus rose but he was going to die again But Jesus was giving us a picture, a little summary of something that was about to happen. That the power of God was going to visit Jesus' dead body after he had given himself over for the sins of the world. And that God was going to do something finally and climatically to overcome death. That Jesus was raised from the dead. And when Jesus is raised from the dead, he is not raised that he would die another death, but rather has an immortal life. And that ultimately and finally, decisively and comprehensively, death and sin and pain and sorrow that afflicts our world and is in every part of the creation that was spoiled and polluted by sin, that this would be destroyed. And so what ultimately is the larger plan that we find in the passage. It's ultimately what is your greatest and deepest comfort. That your God has entered into your pain and sorrow and he's even gone down underneath it, dying an unjust death, a righteous man dying for the unrighteous. And then he has been vindicated and raised. And he stands at the right hand of God And in his resurrection, we see the future hope. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die, but he will live. And Jesus is speaking of that great day when he returns. And all creation is healed and restored. That the good purposes for which God made the beautiful world 
in all of its variety, in all of its depth, in all of its abundance, that all of that will be restored and the scourge of sin will be removed. And as John writes in Revelation 21, that God will stoop and wipe away the tears from every eye. And this is what the resurrection secures. It's the strong medicine of faith in the middle of sorrow that God will make this right. And in Jesus' resurrection, we have the down payment. And so, of course, we can come to him. We can state our griefs. We can state our problems. We do so inside of a framework of trust, even though we don't fully get it and understand. And we're not going to. And we do so knowing that our God fully identifies with that pain. And he has a great, large plan for the renewal of the world. That's what the resurrection of Jesus is about. And so Jesus, the teacher, this morning, he's here and he's calling for you. And he's asking you a very simple question. It's the question that he asked Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this, Chuck? Do you believe this, Christ Church? Because he's not playing with religion. He's not playing with rules and sets of data. It's not theological games. He's talking about the resurrection of the dead. He's talking about the consolation that heals the world. That is the religion Jesus is building. It's a hopeful one. It overcomes the world's deep problems. And he asks you and he asks me that very personal and intense question. Do you believe this? Is this where your hopes are? And may we all have the faith to answer with Martha. Yes, Lord, I believe. Let's pray. In the midst of all sorrow and grief, we bring these things to you and we recognize the deep comforts that we have, that in the middle of our trouble that we're not promised to be freed from today, that we have a great consolation because Jesus Christ is up from the dead. Comfort us with these things, God, in the middle of our own pain and our anguish and our loss. May we know that you feel with us even when we can't feel that. And will we know that you will overcome this. Console us and grant us the faith to say, yes, Lord, I believe. Strengthen us, encourage us to do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.